Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, very, a very, very warm welcome uh, to you uh, to this latest event in the LSE European Institute APCO Worldwide Perspectives on Europe uh, series. Um, I think it's safe to say that few countries fascinate uh, in the way uh, that Italy does. And this evening we, have, we really have no better uh, guide to what makes Italy such uh, a beguiling place. Uh, we are delighted that David Gilmore has uh, accepted our invitation to come and talk about his latest book, uh, which, as you all know, which is why you're here, I know, The Pursuit of Italy, A History of a Land, Its Regions, and Their Peoples, copies of which, incidentally, uh, will be available for perusal and uh, hopefully purchase as well immediately after uh, the uh, lecture. Uh, and I know that uh, David will be uh, very happy to sign copies. There will also be uh, a reception afterwards, and uh, you're all most cordially invited uh, to stay for the reception um, if you have the time uh, and uh, an inclination. Um, I'm sure that uh, most of you will have seen at least some of the media reviews, uh, the media reviews so far of the book. They've been uh, extensive. They've been uh, unsparing in their praise, uh, and, and I'm happy to confirm, even though I've only had the book for now for two days, uh, with very good justification. It really is a uh, terrific book. Um, David Gilmore's reputation as a historian and biographer uh, precedes him. Uh, he is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a former research fellow of St. Anthony's College, uh, Oxford. Uh, his books include biographies of Rudyard Kipling uh, and Lord Curzon, uh, and also A Life of Giuseppe di Lampedusa, which won the Marsh Biography Award. Uh, and of course, uh, David also writes extensively um, in the literate outposts of the media. Now, his credentials for tackling uh, such uh, an unwieldy topic uh, are unimpeachable. He knows the country intimately. Uh, he has stayed and, uh, uh, and traveled through all of Italy's 20 regions. Uh, he's steeped in its art uh, and its literature. Uh, and, of course, he is an enthusiast uh, of the country, but he's also quite unsparing in some of his uh, judgments. At a micro level, I'd say Giorgio Vasari gets a rather short shrift, uh, rather unfairly, I thought, um, as do some of uh, Verdi's patriotic posturings when clearly the great composer's mind's mind was elsewhere. Um, Italy's geographical disadvantages are laid bare uh, and claims to ethnic homogeneity, uh, to say nothing of linguistic and cultural cohesion, uh, are also exposed to the cold light of day. Um, now, the book does offer a proper historical uh, narrative, but probably the warmest praise it's, it's, it has attracted has been for its many fascinating excursions from uh, chronology in the form of anecdotes, vignettes, and uh, wry and telling observations and insights. Uh, the prolific and ubiquitous Beppe Severnini, whom I noticed David acknowledges uh, in his introduction, uh, pointed out a few years ago that there are two histories of Italy. Uh, and forgive me for the poor pronunciation, but he said, Esiste la storia d'Italia? with capitals, uh, maiuscula, almeno dal punto di, visto, di vista ortografico. Ed esiste, la, ed esiste la storia italiana, minuscola, ma ricca di episodi straordinari. Se volete capire l'Italia, non trascurate questi fenomeni minori. Well, David's book is both types of history, but it's in the micro-history that Italy's many strengths perhaps are to be found and celebrated. Um, it's a story of talented and creative and hardworking people 
perhaps rather ill-served by the institutions and political elites of the nation's first 150 years, which we're celebrating this week. So, so much perhaps that particular argument is perhaps by now quite well rehearsed, though rarely as tellingly uh, as in these pages. But it's also a story of vibrant localism, of dense interpersonal relationships, of civic loyalties, and, and focus on the, on the here and now, uh, which have frustrated the drive for nationhood. And it's on the themes of nationalism and the risorgimento and unification that the book is perhaps most challenging and most radical in its analysis. Now, given Italy's micro strengths and uh, micro strengths and macro weaknesses, if I can put it that way, it seemed to make sense to ask a political economist, my distinguished uh, colleague uh, in the LSE European Institute, uh, Dr. Marco Simoni, to offer some thoughts on David's thesis. Uh, on his book immediately after David's talk. And then as per usual with the, uh, our usual uh, format here at LSE, um, uh, we will leave time, of course, for questions from yourselves, from the audience, uh, to, uh, to our guest, uh, David uh, Gilmore. And we'll probably wrap up about quarter to eight. But as I say, everyone is cordially uh, welcome to the reception, which will follow, uh, follow after that. Anyway, quite enough of me. Um, David, we're delighted that you have come to join us and share some of your observations about Italy with us. And uh, please, the floor is yours. Good evening, and thank you for coming tonight. And thank you, Maurice, for that extremely kind introduction. <coughs> I've been a little nervous about introductions ever since the previous chairman looked me up in a writer's who's who, where I am conflated in the same entry with another David Gilmore. <laughs> not the famous David Gilmore, alas, not the lead guitarist of the Pink Floyd, <laughs> but a Canadian novelist who writes fiction about low life in Ontario. <laughs> in consequence, the chairman announced that I had followed up my biography of Giuseppe di Lampedusa with a novel about the drug scene in Toronto. <laughs> if you were asked by a poster which country you thought had produced the greatest artists, which one had built the most beautiful cities, and which had provided the world with its finest singers and composers, I expect that most of you will put Italy first or second. Again, if you were asked which country had developed the best cuisine, which one contained the loveliest man-made landscapes, and which had produced the most stylish designs in clothes and motor cars and many other things, I think you would also rate Italy very high, perhaps in the first four or five, at any rate near the top of the Premier League. <coughs> but if you were asked which country was the best government, which one was the least corrupt? Which has been the most successful in dealing with the problems of organized crime? You wouldn't put Italy in the first four or five. Indeed, not in the Premier League or even in the division below it. And you'd be right. According to Transparency International, a highly regarded NGO, Italy ranks in 67th place in the Incorruptibility League, 
the lowest in Europe apart from Greece, and below such countries as Tunisia, Rwanda, and Saudi Arabia. Its score is closer to those of the bottom two countries, Burma and Somalia, than it is to its neighbours, Austria and Switzerland. On other matters, such as the gender gap or press freedom, Italy ranks even lower. During the current government of Silvio Berlusconi, the American freedom of the press report has downgraded its rating of Italy's press press from free to partly free and placed the country in 73rd position below Ghana, Chile, Mali and Namibia. So why is this? Why is the country that has contributed more than any other to Western culture unable to rule itself according to contemporary notions of government? Why is the land that two and a half thousand years ago had a Senate and elections, and that 1,000 years ago was developing democratic republics in the medieval city-states. Why can't it now produce a political system that works? Over the last century and a half, Spain has had a more brutal and tormented political history than Italy. Yet within a few years of General Franco's death and the end of his dictatorship, in 1975, it possessed a stable two-party system that functions much like any other in Europe. In Italy, by contrast, a century and a half after unification, politics is still unable to settle into any kind of rhythm or consistency. When I was at school in the late 60s, I was taught that the Risorgimento and the unification of Italy had been an exemplary tale of liberty triumphing over tyranny and repression. Young, self-sacrificing Italians had risen against foreign oppressors and reactionary monarchs, heroically defeating them all and uniting their nation. I was surprised a few years later when, by now a young journalist, I met an elderly and distinguished Italian judge, a former opponent of Mussolini, who had once been Minister of Education, who said to me, You know, Davide, Garibaldi did Italy a great disservice. If he had not invaded Sicily and Naples, we in the north would have the richest and most civilized state in Europe. Then he added in a low voice, Of course, to the south, we would have a neighbor like Egypt. Let me make it clear straight away that I don't think southern Italy, what was then called the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, would have been like Egypt. I think today it would be quite like Spain, perhaps like Spain without Catalonia. But it wasn't this example of northern prejudice that was interesting, but the other part of his remark, which made me wonder whether the north might have been better off by itself, either as a single unit or perhaps as several units. Perhaps it wasn't just bad luck and adverse circumstances that had delayed the unification of Italy for so many centuries. Perhaps the peninsula's history and geography made it unsuitable territory for nationalism. Maybe the determinist theory was wrong and the Italian states were not predestined to unite. And let's remember 
they were not all the reactionary priest-ridden domains that propaganda claimed. The Grand Duchy of Tuscany was perhaps the most civilized state in 18th century Europe. It abolished the death penalty nearly 200 years before we did in Britain. As for the Republic of Venice, this could claim to be the most successful state in the history of the Western world. Until Napoleon destroyed it, it had lasted over a thousand years, longer than ancient Rome, and without a revolution, a coup d'etat, or a successful foreign invasion. The nationalist prophet Giuseppe Mazzini once claimed that God had given the Italians the most clearly demarcated fatherland in Europe. As we can see in our atlas, it lies in the centre of the Mediterranean, protected in the north by the Alps and everywhere else by the sea. But the map is deceptive. The Alps may look impressive, but they are in fact easy for armies to cross, as dozens of invaders from Hannibal to Napoleon via Alaric and Attila have demonstrated. Nor is the sea any more protective. Italy's four and a half thousand miles of coastline have over the centuries allowed it and its islands to be attacked from all directions by aggressors from three continents. It has thus been one of the most easily and frequently invaded places in the world. The island of Sicily is in so vulnerable a position that it has been unable to repel a serious foreign invader since the 5th century BC, when Syracuse defeated the Athenians in the Peloponnesian War. Nor has the north been much luckier. At the end of the 15th and beginning of the 16th centuries, three successive French kings invaded Italy, starting a tradition lasting 370 <coughs> years, whereby the plains of Lombardy became the favourite battleground for France, in its wars first against Spain and later against Austria. <clears throat> Italy's vulnerability, plus its wealth, made it a magnet for invaders and settlers and thus a place of profound ethnic diversity. Just as there was no Roman ethnic identity, nor has there been an Italian one, the Anglo-Saxons of England might coalesce to resist the Danish invasions of the 9th century. But how could the peoples of Italy coalesce, when at that time they consisted of Arabs in Sicily, Byzantines in Apulia, and a mixture of Franks, Goths, Lombards, and Romans in the rest of the peninsula? Another feature of Italy that has obstructed the emergence of a sense of nationhood is its internal geography. Above all, the Apennines, that serrated, multi-layered barrier of mountains, torrents, and ravines that has encouraged cultural diversity and at the same time hindered moves towards political unity. Back again to the 5th century BC, the inhabitants of ancient Greece spoke the same language and thought of themselves as Greek. In Italy at that time, the population spoke about 40 languages and didn't consider themselves at all the same people, let alone Italians. Later, the diversity became even more pronounced. At the time of unification in 1861, it has been estimated that only one Italian in 40, two and a half percent of the population, spoke Italian. That is the language the Florentine Tuscan evolved from the writing of Dante and Boccaccio. Even if this is an exaggeration, and say 10% uh, understood the language, 
That still means that 90% of the inhabitants of the new nation spoke in regional dialects that people in other places couldn't understand. The King of Naples spoke in Neapolitan, and so did his court. The King of Piedmont, the future King Vittorio Emanuele of Italy, spoke in Piedmontese when he wasn't speaking French. Thanks to the radio and television, the use of dialect is declining, but it's still remarkably strong. For Venetians, Venetian is the maternal tongue, Italian the one they learn at school, as what the actor Lino Toffolo calls our first foreign language. In the northeastern region of Friuli Venezia Giulia, the prevalent dialect, Friulano, has now become an official language, together with Italian, German, and Slovene. Though it's not much use to the inhabitants of its capital, Trieste, who don't speak it and use their own dialect, Triestino. Such linguistic diversity has for centuries encouraged the peoples of Italy to identify with their towns and communes and regions much more than with the states they have lived in, such as the Papal States, the Duchy of Parma, the Kingdom of Naples, and more recently the state of Italy. This is an inheritance of the medieval communes, the city-states, many of which have been beautifully preserved and where life today is as civilized as anywhere on the planet. Modena, Cremona, Bergamo, Lucca, Siena, Arezzo, we could list at least 30 or 40 others. The great 19th century Federalist, Carlo Catania, didn't exaggerate hugely when he said that the communes were the nation. They are the nation in the innermost sanctuary of its liberty. The communal spirit is still a vital component of the national identity, one that has been largely ignored by Italy's rulers ever since the first Prime Minister, Cavour. Local loyalties were one cause of the lateness of Italian unification. Two others were international institutions that each lasted over a thousand years. One of these was the Holy Roman Emperor, who from Charlemagne onwards asserted his rights as the ultimate ruler of Italy. The other was the Pope, who as temporal ruler of the Papal States administered a wide band of territory dividing the northern and southern halves of the peninsula until the second half of the 19th century. Even after unification, the papacy did much harm to the new state and its identity by refusing to recognize it and by forbidding Catholics to vote in parliamentary elections. Since Catholicism was almost the only thing shared by Italians at that time, the Vatican stance was disastrous for the cohesion and consolidation of the new nation. We cannot talk about Italian nationalism, that is about any sense of nationhood among Italians before Napoleon. In all the wars fought in Italy from the 15th century to 1870, the peoples of Italy were to be found fighting on both sides without feeling that in so doing they were betraying the patria, the fatherland. For them the patria was whatever unity, whatever entity they were citizens of, were it the Duchy of Mantua or the Republic of Venice or one of the other states. In Russia and Spain, a ferocious nationalism helped drive Napoleon out of those lands. Yet there was no equivalent uprising in Italy, despite Napoleon's treatment of it, even when he was on the verge of defeat. 
Despite propaganda at the time and since, the Italian patriotic movement was numerically small and consisted largely of young, middle-class men from the north. In 1859, the decisive year that united most of the north, just 20,000 Italians volunteered out of a population of nearly 25 million. That is, not even one person in a thousand. Without international support, the patriotic movement couldn't have been successful, at any rate, not during that period. It was the French victories in 1859 that gave it Lombardy. It was the Prussian victory in 1866 that gained it Venice and the Veneto. There were, of course, many brave patriots fighting for Italy, but the overall level of enthusiasm and self-sacrifice was low. It's been estimated that more Italians were killed in a single day's fighting against the Ethiopians at the Battle of Adowa in 1896 than in all the wars of the Risorgimento put together. And those wars themselves were not so much struggles of liberation, but a series of civil wars. Garibaldi's campaigns in Sicily and Naples in 1860 were remarkable achievements, but they were in essence a conquest by northern Italians of southern Italians, followed by an imposition of northern laws on the southern kingdom. For many years afterwards, northern politicians emphasized this fact by treating the conquered people with contempt. The first northern governor of the south, Luigi Carlo Farini, was typical when he said the south was not Italy but Africa. And he even claimed that the Arab Bedouin of the desert were the flower of civic virtue when compared to Neapolitans. <laughs> Such attitudes soon provoked a civil war in the south that lasted for five years, although northerners routinely belittled the conflict as the Brigantaggio, the war against the brigands. That attractive Piedmontese statesman, Massimo D'Azeglio, is supposed to have said, though in fact he didn't, is supposed to have said after unification, now we have made Italy, we must learn to make Italians. Unless the chief means chosen by the governments of the new Italy to do this was to try to turn Italy into a great power, one that could compete militarily with France, Germany and Austria-Hungary, an attempt certain to fail because the new nation didn't have the economic resources to do so. This obsession to turn Italians into conquerors and colonialists didn't begin with Mussolini, but with the first governments of United Italy, which insisted on having more soldiers in their country than Britain deployed in an empire spread across the six continents of the globe. To become a great power, argued Francesco Crispi, who was twice Prime Minister, Italy needed what he called a baptism of blood, a war it could win by itself against one of the great powers. In 1866, Austria offered to give Italy Venetia without the expense and suffering of a war if it remained neutral in the conflict between Austria and Prussia. But Italy insisted on fighting, insisted on its baptism, and was duly defeated both on land and at sea. Denied in Europe, Italy turned to conquests in Africa with the prime objective, according to Crispi, of asserting Italy's name and showing the barbarians that Italians were a strong and virile race. When one of his armies was wiped out in Ethiopia, 
the composer Giuseppe Verdi regarded it as a salutary defeat for a country playing the tyrant in Africa. Some sensible politicians agreed with him, arguing that the money squandered in the Red Sea could have been used to develop Sicily, Sardinia and Calabria. But the predominant strain in Italian politics, personified by its first two kings, Vittorio Emanuele and Umberto, was militarist and colonialist. When at the beginning of the 20th century, the great liberal prime minister, Giovanni Giulietti, tried to abandon the project of making Italy great in favour of making it prosperous, he was howled down by a new breed of politicians known as the nationalists, whose rhetoric consisted chiefly of macabre demands for war and blood to oil the wheels of history. As one of its intellectuals, Giovanni Papini, declared, we love war and we will savour it like gourmets as long as it lasts. A field of corpses, he claimed, will produce more beautiful cabbages than a field that contained more normal fertiliser. The futurist movement of artists and intellectuals competed in tasteless and hysterical militarism. Its famous manifesto of 99 proclaiming two cardinal principles, the glorification of war and the scorning of women. Its founder Marinetti even began a campaign for the abolition of pasta on the grounds that it encouraged pacifism. <laughs> As luck would have it, whatever credibility he might have had was destroyed when he himself was photographed munching his way through a bowl of spaghetti. It was this kind of nationalist rhetoric that led to Italy's invasion of Libya in 1911 and to its participation in the First World War four years later. At no stage in its 150-year-old history has Italy needed to fight a war. Indeed, it had no enemies except those it voluntarily made in Africa. And no country provoked it in either the First World War or the Second. In each of the great global conflicts, Italy joined in the fighting nine months after it had begun, when it thought it had identified the winner and had extracted promises of territorial rewards. In 1915, it attacked Austria, a formal ally for the previous 33 years, because the Triple Entente would offer more territory than the Central Powers, and because the determinant of foreign policy was, as the Prime Minister Salandra admitted in an unfortunate phrase, Italy's sacred egoism. That egoism demanded not only the Italian-speaking zones of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, which was a legitimate aim, but also Slav-speaking Dalmatia and the German-speaking South Tyrol. The coming to power of Benito Mussolini didn't cause a break with this policy, but its continuation in an exaggerated way. His aggressions in Libya and Ethiopia were simply more vigorous and more successful than those of his predecessors. He managed to conquer Addis Ababa and was thus able to claim that after a lapse of 15 centuries, empire had returned to the seven hills of Rome. Like Crispi, Papini and Marinetti, he talked a lot about blood and demanded the return of the death penalty because he wanted Italians to be more virile to habituate them to the sense of blood and the idea of death. He exhorted warfare, claiming it was the normal condition of peoples. 
it was to men what maternity was to women. Like his resorgimento predecessors, he was obsessed with the idea of changing the nature of his countrymen, and he claimed that fascism was the greatest experiment in our history of making Italians. One of his favorite words or verbs was plasmare, meaning to mold or shape them, though later he preferred to use forgiare, as if he saw himself as their blacksmith, refashioning them on the anvil of his forge. And in both roles, Mussolini was more successful than any other leader in making Italians. As our fine contemporary historian Alberto Mario Banti has put it, the middle years of his dictatorship were the apex of the process of nationalizing the masses, the moment when Italy's national identity was at its strongest and most widespread. It's often claimed that fascism was an aberration in Italy's history, what Benedetto Croce called a parenthesis in the nation's story. What Carlos Sforza, a foreign minister both before and after Mussolini, regarded as only a brief interlude of unreality. Yet in comparison with the French Revolution of 1789 or the Spanish Revolution of 1931, fascism changed little of substance. It retained the monarchy, protected private property, exalted the family, and established good relations with the Catholic Church. Abroad, its policies were aggressive and avaricious, but not so very different from those preceding governments that had also demanded wars in Europe and colonies in Africa. The real break in Italy's 20th century history surely come not in 1922, but at the end of the Second World War, when the essential ingredients of the Risorgimento, which had been liberal, nationalist, and anti-clerical, virtually disappeared along with the monarchy and were replaced by the anti-nationalist and indeed internationalist ideologies of communism and Christian democracy. At the same time, Italy abandoned its pretensions to become a great power and concentrated with far more success on achieving prosperity for its citizens. Instead of being a destabiliser of Europe, the country became a responsible participant in European affairs, joining with NATO and the European Economic Community. Post-war denationalized Italy was in many ways a great success. Without wars to fight or colonies to conquer, it could invest in infrastructure and other fields that helped reward it in the 50s and 60s with an average annual economic growth rate of nearly 6%. In 1986, Italy's economy overtook Britain's. Ultimately, the national prestige craved by Crispi, Vittorio Emanuele and Mussolini was acquired not because the country had become a great power, but because it had become an innovator in such peaceful and productive fields as film, fashion, and industrial design. <coughs> this was all a great success, but how much was it an achievement for Italy, or for the idea of Italy? Didn't post-war Italy, with the ideologies of the Vatican and the Kremlin dominating elections at all levels, represent a defeat for the ideas of every nationalist from Cavour to Mussolini. What was left of the nation once nationalism had been discredited and reduced to a small number of neo-fascists? Italians are generally, I find, internationalist and in a good sense provincial, 
but not nationalist, except when their leaders have forced or cajoled them into being so. Without the nationalist propaganda of the Risorgimento and the fascist regime, without any shared national traditions going back before 1861, Italy became the most denationalized state in Europe. As many observers, Italians and foreign, like to point out, the sense of belonging to the same nation is often apparent only at an event such as the World Cup, when the Azzurri, the national football team, are playing well, as, except last year, they usually are. <laughs> this wouldn't matter. It might even be a good thing if the post-fascist state had been more successful, not just as the overseer of the economy, but as an entity with which its citizens could identify and could rely upon. And this notoriously is not the case. I don't want to dwell here on the inadequacies of the political system which left the largest party in power for half a century and the second largest in permanent opposition, a system so flawed that governments on average lasted barely a year. Or on the weaknesses of the current Prime Minister, who, leaving aside all the scandals and charges made against him, failed dismally to deliver the one thing he promised above all else, economic growth. During Berlusconi's premiership at the start of the century, Italy's growth was the slowest of all Europe, averaging 0.3% a year. I don't spend time either discussing the failure, failures of those governments to tackle corruption or safeguard the environment, or even protect their citizens from the oppression and violence of the southern criminal gangs. We know from the work of the courageous Roberto Saviano that just one of these, the Camorra, murdered 3,600 people in the quarter century before 2005 and turned the region of Campania into the homicidal record holder of Europe. What I'm more interested in is the effect that these failures and this abdication of responsibility has had on the Italian sense of nationhood. At one level, we can gauge this simply by going to a bookshop and looking at the rows of despairing titles of recent books written by intellectuals wondering what has gone wrong, why Italy doesn't function, why people feel so alienated from the state and are so dependent still on their families and their communes. Books called, for example, Italiani senza Italia, Italians without Italy, or The Death of the Fatherland, If We Cease to Be a Nation, Is Italy a Civilized Country, often with even more pessimistic subtitles, such as Why Italy Cannot Succeed in Becoming a Modern Country. One journalist has quipped that 150 years ago, Italy was a state without a language, and has now become a language without a state. At a political level, these failures may prove terminal to the health of the Italian state as it is now constituted. It's easy to scoff at the Northern League and to condemn it for its racism and demagoguery. Yet it is the third largest party in Italy, and it has the power to make and break governments of the centre-right, which is the majority of political tendency in Italy. It is also a party that ideologically rejects unification insults southern Italians either as mafiosi or as Africans, and sneers that instead of uniting Italy, Garibaldi divided Africa. When its allies in Berlusconi's party also mock the resistance, the second sacred experience of modern Italian history, one sometimes wonders what is left 
of the nation. I'm not a pundit, and I don't know what will become of Italy. But I do believe its only chance for survival is to become more of a federal state, what it should have been all along, a state that recognizes the importance of regionalism and diversity, not only in the autonomous regions, but everywhere else as well. For here, at least, the Northern League is surely right to demand fiscal federalism, a system that allows regions to spend their, their own revenues on their own projects. In a properly united country, it's taken for granted that the richer provinces will subsidize the poorer ones, and people don't much grumble about it. But the Italian businessmen in the north, people trying to compete with rivals in Austria and Slovenia, they do resent moving so much of their revenue to a south with which they feel such little affinity. Not only are they, not only are they allowing Sicily and Calabria to spend 50% more than what they earn, they know that a lot of their money is ending up in the pockets of the southern mafias. Unless this grievance is redressed, I think Rome is in danger of losing the north. Centralism hasn't worked in Italy because it goes against the grain of its history and its geography. Some nations, such as France and Britain, have historically been more important than the sum of their parts might have indicated. In Italy, the opposite has been true. The parts are so stupendous that a single region, Tuscany or the Veneto, would rival every country in the world in the quality of its art and the civilization of its past. But the parts have not added up to a coherent or identifiable whole. Uniting the country under a Piedmontese king and Piedmontese laws was a mistake resented by the peoples of other areas. Trying to turn Italians into conquerors and colonialists was an even worse mistake, which resulted in expensive and catastrophic failure. And corrupt and inefficient government from the centre has since alienated people of all regions. If Italian politics, politicians could only embrace the diversity of the country, that diversity and distinctiveness that produced the wealth and glories of the Communist and the Renaissance, then I think Italy would become a more harmonious and contented place for its citizens. Thank you. David, thank you for a, a wonderfully uh, rich and uh, textured talk and uh, for a provocative uh, uh, talk as well. Um, I'm sure that Marco will uh, sign, yes, if you like to speak from there, uh, rise to the challenge um, and offer some thoughts on what, uh, on what you've had to say. So I'll be... Dr. Marco Simoni. Thank you very much. I'll be very brief as I um, want to leave time for... Uh, debates and remark uh, from the audience. But let me start by thanking David Gilmore for coming here today and delivering such an insightful lecture, which in fact was a very uh, close image of his book, I think. And thanking Maurice Fraser to have asked me to discuss this and giving me this opportunity. Um, I have to say that it has been uh, refreshing for me to read such a comprehensive, deep, and well-written book. As a political scientist, uh, you might know that I tend to consider anything that happened 30, far than 30 years ago as irrelevant. 
um, well, this is not entirely true or fair to the profession, but we do tend to compress what um, history and not confront enough with the long term. Well, I missed that reflection and I enjoyed it very much. Um, in fact, what we tend to do is focusing on the short term and on what we call variables of political phenomenon so much that we tend to overlook deeper and perhaps profounder factors. So David Gilmour's book doesn't, definitely doesn't have this flaw. Um, I think it is, in fact, a remarkable, a remarkable achievement on many levels. And I've chosen a few uh, points of inspiration that I took from the book. And I offer you to the discussion, perhaps. The first one is the breadth of its scope, which is quite astonishing for such a book, which is one single book, not an, encyclo an encyclopedia, of course, um, but starts off with a thorough discussion and analysis of Italian geography, so that um, all the rest uh, of facts that develop from there give a sense and convey a sense of unity uh, much more than single accounts of particular moment in Italian history or particular events of Italian history could have had. Um, and in doing this, I think, the book, um, and I'm saying this for those of you who haven't read that yet, um, caters both to a readership of intellectuals and academics interested in confronting their view with uh, those of David Gilmer's and, uh, you know, any curious uh, reader of history of European countries. Um, as I said, the historical breadth of the book is so extensive that it's impossible to summarize it in a better way that David Gilmore did already. Starting from ancient history to the present time and convening that sense of continuity that defies any other reading of history, I think, characterized instead by ruptures or punctuations. In fact, even events as perhaps fascism or most recent domination of Berlusconi in the political scene that can or could be regarded as extraordinary or surprising by contemporaries have been treated um, and are treated as mosaics of a, uh, a mosaic pieces that form a single picture of a land and a people which is characterized by a wealth of diversity that leads both to marvelous achievements and striking contradictions. So tomorrow, as many of you will know, will be 150 years since Italians came united into a single polity. And one sentence of the book that David Gilmore already mentioned in his presentation, I think summarizes well both the difficulty of such endeavor and somehow the achievements. Uh, am I referring to the fact that in 1861, only one Italian in 40, or at best one in 10, speak or understood Italian, mainly Tuscans in fact. So if you uh, take off Tuscany, very little remains of Italian speakers in the rest of the country. 80% of the literacy rate, Italian a foreign language for both uh, southern peasants and Venetian lawyers. Um, yet, 
with all this contradiction that are apparent throughout Italian history in the, well, previously, before unity in its many polities and after, since unity in, in its unitary polity, um, with all the contradictions that are apparent in a profoundly divisive polity, the results of this effort of unity have been remarkable, I think. Um, and this is fully given account in, in the book. Economic growth, cultural growth, collective growth have been all informed by the institutions of unitary Italy. So different cleavages, and that's it's the other um, recurrent um, theme of not only the book, but Italy itself, are the different cleavages that have emerged. Some of them are a constant of its history, the, of course, since unification, the divide, but even before, between the rich north and the poor and, and the underdeveloped south. Of course, the variety of um, municipal identities that still form much character of Italian um, personalities. And then others have changed instead. So cleavages come and go somehow with a long, and this is pretty clear with, a, with a lo having a long-term perspective in one single work. Um, so even if we only refer to the unitary period, we had earlier this strong cleavage and struggle between the Catholic Church and its structure and the secular politicians of the uh, early days of the unitary kingdom. Then, of course, the fascist regime and its uh, opposes the Cold War and the communist anti-communist divide. More recently, the di divide between uh, supporters and opposers uh, of Berlusconi. So more could be named and more are present in the book. So this divisive, this divisive tendency gives a sense of a polity that, as Gilmore puts it, shows and appears as at least incomplete. Um, if not uh, failed altogether, where many loyalties to the unitary tensions have been constantly threatened by strong centrifugal forces. In other words, my personal take is that David Gilmer's ultimate um, argument and point can hardly be contested um, on the importance and the perhaps the, the, the failure of recognizing the importance of uh, local specificity as the key element that drove the failing of the or the uncompleteness of the unitary state. However, um, and if, my, if I may add to this, um, as we, all, we have all learned, I think, in the past 10 to 15 years that history, it's unlikely to come to an end, as somebody was suggesting in the early 90s. Um, Perhaps David Gilmour's next book, or maybe the chapter that he will add in the next edition in a, in a few years, could take a different route and a different uh, overall judgment. Because when the point of reference in evaluating the performance of Italy and the features of its polity are the successful nation states of France, UK, or Germany, other European countries with which Italians liked, always uh, wanted to compare um, and confront, Italy might look as stuck in a constant process of transition or slow evolution or imperfect and uh, or maybe impossible evolution towards a fully-fledged unitary and functioning polity. However, in a globalized scenario, in a globalized polity, those, that picture, in the, this bleak picture could in fact change. Um, this book, uh, The Pursuit of Italy, explains how 
the make of Italy was a product of cultural and ethnic blend, and how this blend was then conducive to, to innovation and discovery. Um, it showed how little tendency Italians had, uh, perhaps with the exception of the Roman era, to wage and fight in wars. In fact, that was perhaps the uh, single domain in which Italians were at their wars um, in this respect. And perhaps uh, from the perspective of the 21st century, this might not be a terribly bad thing. Um, also, it shows how much of its economic growth was in different periods in time uh, in the Renaissance, um, in the most recent economic boom in the post-war decades, um, depending and uh, rooted on trade and even finance. So what I'm, not, what I'm hinting at here is that it might well be the case then that Italy, its geography and the diversity and the way Italian population become to develop uh, was ill-suited to become a uh, um, act to a world dominated by unitary and cohesive polities. Um, so just as much, however, its historical feature and geographical feature led to a divisive and unfit polity for this times or for the past time, by the same tokens, the same features might turn into fundamental assets in a globalized century to come. Thank you. Well, Marco, thank you for leaving that, that resolutely upbeat uh, note. Um, uh, I think we're achieving quite a judicious balance so far in our appraisal of Italy and its prospects. Uh, we'll see if that's maintained or, or afterwards. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've got about 25 minutes for questions. Um, so if you please like to indicate if you'd like to ask a question, and I will ask you to say who you are, um, and if you have an affiliation you'd like to tell us of, so much the better. Please keep it very short and sweet, um, and wait for the portable microphone to be brought round to you. Uh, the gentleman over there caught my attention in the brown top. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, my name is Mr. Stefano Bonfa. I come from south of Italy, 10 years emigrated here in UK, and working for international organization. My question is that I would like to understand a little bit about I mean, your opinion about this unification was a mistake or this or not. Now, maybe it's not better to ask the question, does the European Union unification is a mistake? How much does EU impact on the unification of Italy? How the process of EU does integrate it? let's say, the south part of Europe to the, to the northern part of you. Now, as a result of these 50 years of, let's say, let's say, unification of Europe, does bring on the southern part of Italy any contribution to you? So the rise of the, the, the origin of uh, organization like mafia, drangheta, etc., is this a real problem is not really the government of EU as well as Italy. They don't have a strategy. They don't know how to, let's say, a more comprehensive development in Northern and South. So Thank this you. is my question. I want to see the unification in a perspective of the present EU, let's say, policy. Thank I think you. your question is very clear. Thank you. Right. Uh -huh. Would you, uh, do you want to say? 
Well, uh, how has the European Union um, uh, impacted um, on uh, it on unification, um, and to what extent, by extension, presumably, is it an answer to Italy's unsuccessful unification? Well, I think it's an indication um, uh, of Italians' dissatisfaction with their state that the European Union is is so is so popular. Um, I think it's it's often been a uh, the latest opinion poll I, I saw was that 60% of the Italians believe that the European Union is a good thing and is a great help to them, um, and that compares with something like 25% in, in, in this country. I, th I think it's a reflection on, on the failure of, of the government in Rome uh, to deal with um, so, so many of, of the so economic and structural, structural uh, problems in, in Italy that, um, that Brussels has been has been so successful. But one I also say that actually Italy doesn't really put its weight inside the European Union. It has no identifiable European policy in the way that France and Germany and even Eurosceptic uh, to, to Britain has. Um, but uh, Europe has been a, well, after all, both Garibaldi and Mazzini uh, believed in, in a, a United States of, of Europe. So, uh, so its popularity is uh, is a, good, is a great thing. And of course, the structural funds that were available have, have, have um, helped the, the, the economy in the South a good deal over the years. I mean, less so now that Eastern Europe has, has joined in and the funds are left. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to cluster uh, questions and which will put the onus on you to keep them very, very short um, and sweet, please, uh, if that's okay. I'll take, I'll, I'll cluster into question in three questions at a time, if that's okay. Is that right? But we'll keep them very short. And oh, Okay, sorry. Uh, yes, there were lots of enthusiasts uh, up there. Um, yes, the gentleman with his left hand up. Um, yeah. Uh, Bernard Herman, one of the features of, Euro of uh, the Italian experience, as in every other country in Europe, is the arrival of non-European immigrants in unprecedented numbers within the body politic. One thinks especially of large-scale Muslim immigration from North Africa and increasingly and more recently this highly skilled Chinese immigration into parts of Tuscany. How will that impact upon forthcoming political developments in the near future? Thank you very much. Okay, um, and uh, yes, two more. Um, yes, the lady directly. Yes, yes, yeah, over there. Well, not an expert on Germany, um, I would like to know if you could comment on another nation state quite close to Italy that came together and had its own risorgimento, if you will, at around the same time, but they seem to have had quite a different result. Thank you. Is that clear? Germany. Uh, Germany, I assume she's talking about um, Germany, yes. Okay, and, uh, and one, one more question. Yes, gentleman at the front. Let me come to you after. Thank you. Yes. Um, my name is Tomacelli. Uh, I am a ne Neapolitan Bedouin. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think the unification of Italy was a necessity uh, and um, uh, inevitable. However, would they agree that unfortunately it was ill-conceived, badly uh, uh, executed, and uh, disastrously managed? Thank you. Right, well, do you want to, do you want to start a very long memory. Um, the, the impact of immigration um, 
But I'm not a pundit, I said earlier, I don't know how it will. I don't know how it will. Is it not working? Sorry, sorry, hang on. Um, could we have? Is it? I don't think it is just that. Try, 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 try. Is, it, is that working now? A little bit, a little bit. Could be better, but. Right, okay. Are you sure? Go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, as I was saying earlier, I mean, Italy has been a, a magnet for immigrants since the uh, um, since long before before Rome. And it always will be. It, uh, I mean, the biggest immigrants in the, uh, in, in the Middle Ages were the, were the Albanians who came in from the East Coast. And that's why so many people, in, if you go look at the television directory in Bari and places are called Alban or Albanese, um, it is a very easy place to immigrate to. And uh, there are these disastrous uh, and tragic scenes, and uh, I know it's even worse yesterday, of um, uh, the, you know, the immigrants coming from fleeing from Tunisia and Libya to the island of Lampedusa, and uh, um, I mean, one of the problems they face is that is that immigrants in this country tend to have had a historical uh, relationship with that country, normally you know, as being part of a colonial empire, and have some support groups that are here ready to. Uh, to um, welcome them. For example, I live near, near Banbury, uh, and uh, the 5,000 Asians who live there all come from uh, the Pakistani part of Kashmir. In Italy, this doesn't happen. It's just the nearest part of, of, uh, of, of Europe for many immigrants fleeing from North Africa, and uh, they arrive without relations and without support group, and this is, this is uh, very difficult for the state to deal with and, and, and tragic for the immigrants themselves. Um, to Germany. Uh, I think the main difference between, though it eventually didn't work out well, the main difference between German unification and Italian was that Germany remained a federal state. Uh, and I think Italy could have done that if, if they'd been successful in the revolutions of 1848 and 49. Because in that time, the King of Naples, the Grand Duke of Tuscany, and the Pope were all uh, uh, accepting constitutions and were roughly, on, to, 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 to one extent or another, on the side of, of, the, of the Piedmontese. Um, in, in Germany, after unification, I can't remember, there were still two kings, there were six dukes, there were several independent towns, cities. In Italy, there were not. It was run by the Piedmontese with Piedmontese laws. And I think it was that failure um, to recognize the, uh, the regions that, that uh, in Italy that led to so much trouble, especially in the south in the 1860s, which uh, brings me on to uh, uh, Riccardo Tomacelli's qu question. Yes, I think the ill conception, I think had, had Italy united, whether under the king or under a pope, or, but re retained its, 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 uh, its own states, had, had, uh, had there still been a grand duke in Tuscany, had there still been a king, king in Naples, um, under in a federal system, Italy would have worked out very differently, and I think I'm sure it would have been more successful. Thank you. We'll take another. We'll take a, take another round of uh, of, of questions. Um, the gentleman uh, in the black jumper and the and the grey shirt. Yes. Just uh, yes. 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 Thank you. 
Um, my name is Martin Esposito. I am Roman, despite my surname, and uh, I am a conference interpreter and translator. I deal exclusively with Italian and English. From my perspective, it strikes me that um, the translation for unification is unità, rather than uh, the other existing word unificazione. Um, and I see a psychological difference between unità as something which has been achieved and a unification as a process. I wonder whether you could carry us back to 150 years ago and tell us something about the expectations existing at the time and the communication that took place um, tomorrow 150 years ago, just to get a feeling as to what um, whether it was a sense of something achieved or something which had just begun. Thank you. Thank you. The very tenacious gentleman in the pale blue jumper up there. Your moment has come. Thank you. Um, my name is Luca Schiavoni. I studied uh, media and communications regulation here and uh, now I work for a telecommunications consultancy in London. I would like to ask you, in your view, um, what does the success of the Northern League say about the perception that citizens have of the uh, unity, of the, of the feeling of being Italian? And I would like to ask you also if you believe that something similar is likely to happen in the South in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Patience is its own reward, the gentleman, gentleman there the, with the scarf. Yes. Um, you make some interesting, um, well, you cite interesting reasons why Italy was unfit to become a nation state. No common language, no race, geographical barriers, and yet, and yet it moves. It was unified. Now, I, I don't think that was an accident. I don't think it was um, just great power games. I think what you underestimate, humbly, I put this to you, is the cultural idea of Italy. The idea that the Italian elites throughout the peninsula were united by a common idea of Italianness through art, through music, and through literature. And I think the fact that you didn't identify that is a major weakness of your book. And then another thing I'd like to say is I'd like you to explain what a successful nation state is and why it, Italy is a failure. Does a successful nation state mean that the country has to drink tea and play cricket? Because <laughs> if, if that's the case, then Italy is a failure. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Okay. Um, right. We were first started with unification. Yeah. Well, I think. The difference is I, I, I completely accept your 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 your. your um, Do you have the yes, just speaking as closely as you can into it. I, I accept your point. Your point there is there is a big difference, and uh, if it had been an unificazione and had actually uh, there had been a voluntary unification, I think it would be very different. It, in, in in most cases, it was an imposed unità. Um, certainly on Lombardy, certainly on 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 Veneto in 1866, there was very little very little um, uh, enthusiasm for unification. And if you remember, in the 1848 uh, 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 revolt of Venice against the, uh, the Austrians, uh, Venice wasn't going for, for unity with, with unification with Italy. It was, going to, it was hoping for the restoration of the Republic of Venice. 
And I think, as I said earlier on, that in 1848, had it been a voluntary unification, Italy would have um, uh, prospered much more than an imposed unity. Because, I mean, Cavour, the Prime Minister, was a brilliant politician as he was, he knew nothing about the rest of the country. He hadn't, uh, he'd never been south of Pisa. Yeah, he, he, when his one visit outside to Venice, he found Venice and Verona boring. Um, and yet he, he, he laid down the law about what should happen in Naples and Sicily. And he, he abolished the, uh, the southern law codes that were universally accepted as being superior to those ones in, in Turin. So I think the, the first great mistake was that it was uh, an imposed uh, unity and not a voluntary one. Um, Northern League. Northern League. What League? I, I, I don't think, to say the last part of your question, I don't think that there would be the same problem in the south. Uh, there always has been. I mean, the, the separatism in Sicily was a big issue after the, after the Second World War, uh, and it was more or less bought off by the granting of autonomous status of Sicily and uh, with its own, its, own, uh, its own government. And you don't have the central grievance of the north that Sicily's funds are being uh, transferred to other parts of, of, of the peninsula. So I don't see that that's likely to, to happen. Um, the Northern League. Uh, so what was the point? <laughs> I think these three questions, I, I, my memory is very short. Yeah, right, okay, we'll take two minutes. Well, it's, it's, I think it's partly uh, a result of the failures of the Christian Democrats before, but, uh, cause, because those parts of uh, Lombardy and the Veneto that vote solidly um, for the Northern League now used to vote for the Christian Democrats, and I, and I think uh, they abandoned them, partly because they were disenchanted by the, the, the southern, the essentially southern leadership of, 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 the, um, of, the, of the Christian Democrats, and partly also um, uh, uh, you know, of the corruption. I, I think that the Northern League, uh, its success, and it, the success of it isn't just uh, a question of intellectuals, elites. it goes right down the, the uh, 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 it's of all people, the people you hear in bars uh, complaining about why they're paying taxes, it's people at the top in, polit in politics. I, I think it is, it, it's, uh, it's, the, it, it's the clearest case there is of, of disenchantment with the whole idea of Italy. I mean, as you know, they, they uh, attempted to set up their own state, Padania, a few years ago. Now, there was a certain sort of joke side about that, but, but uh, uh, nevertheless, it, it did express very strong, very, strong, very strong feelings, and those feelings aren't going away. I'd like to just bring in uh, Marco Simoni briefly on this question. Yeah, if I can just jump in on this issue of the success of the League, because I was thinking when reading the book that the, the fact that a party could successfully for long time without losing credibility vis-a-vis uh, -vis anyone else in the political arena, uh, use and adopt such a localist um, and seemingly artifact, but clearly not so much, narrative in its propaganda, I think it's a pretty strong proof of David Gilmer's uh, overall and overarching thesis in his book from one side. From the other side, um, I think that by 
evaluating the success of the, the Lega in the actual dealing with and holding to power in so many parts of northern Italy um, has to, uh, uh, the judgment on this phenomenon has to change depending on the point of observation. So the evaluation of the early rise in the early 90s as a revolutionary movement against uh, traditional government has now to change profoundly because it seems to many observers that the old Christian democratic traditions in local communities have in fact took over the original uh, revolutionary uh, spirit of the Lega so that by and large the mechanisms and dealing of that party in those regions resembles quite a lot what was going on earlier with the democratic Christian democracy. So these two planes I think are quite different. Thank you Michael. And uh, yes, uh, the grit in the oyster um, um, uh, question. Well, I, I accept the reproof. <laughs> yeah. um, you did say it was, uh, there were the cultural elites had this idea of Italy. Well, but very late. Um, there's a scientific, there's great scientific societies of the 18th century talked about a republic of letters, but there was never any question of them thinking that there should be an Italian state. This doesn't come in up till much later. And it's interesting that you say, Elise, because this was so much the criticism of, of uh, Gramsci and Gobetti that it was only a thing of the elites and that uh, they didn't make a successful revolution as they had in France in 1789 because they didn't get their, explain their views to the people. And it's certainly true that even in 1860, when there's Garibaldi rampaging around the, the south, he hardly got any, any recruits from, uh, from the countryside. From, even in Naples, by far the biggest city in the whole of, whole of Italy, there were only 80 people who volunteered to be on his side. So I think it was a very uh, elitist uh, um, uh, movement. That, and this gave the resulting state a very weak basis of support, and when you're on top of that, when you have the Pope saying you mustn't vote in elections, uh, and obviously many Catholics did, uh, but that was an incredibly uh, uh, weakening um, uh, aspect of, 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 the, of the new state that you have the, at a time when the Catholic Church was the most unifying factor in Italy. That you have the Catholic Church refusing to recognise that state and telling its, 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 uh, its followers not to vote for, for elections. We've got time for two more questions, is that right? Yeah, maybe Mark would like to answer. Yes, well, <laughs> he stands ready uh, as and when he feels uh, the urge. Uh, okay, uh, we'll take t uh, two more questions. Uh, if anyone else would like to, um, the gentleman there, then is there anyone at the back who I've been cruelly neglecting? Uh, if, if not, um, the lady on the side there. Um, yes, so gentleman, there was a gentleman over here first, yes, and then the lady there. Thanks. Um, to what extent um, do you think that Italy was created from without? Um, so Napoleon III, for instance, um, very enamored with the idea of um, Italian liberty and unity, as was the... Can you hold it a bit closer? Sorry, it's Sorry. quite hard to hear you. As right was up the, to your mouth. Did, you, did you catch the first bit? Sorry, can you, can you repeat... <laughs> Sorry, um, I just wanted to I ask... Napoleon III was very enamoured with the idea of um, Italian liberty and unity, as was the Victorian press in Britain. And I just wondered um, to what extent do you think the international <coughs> community um, at the time and even today share, should share a degree of um, 
responsibility for the unification of Italy and the creation of the idea of Italy more than Italians themselves. That's a very interesting, very interesting point. So, do you, do you, if you want to answer it straight away, yeah, yes. and then we'll um, come to you after. Thank you. Uh, well, the, I mean, c certainly Napoleon III saw the idea of uh, sort of sort of the creation of a state. It would, would give him a new ally in southern Europe against, against the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Of course, he also, you know, he spent a lot of his time, he was brought up in, in Italy, and he had fought as a, 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 a revolutionary in two daft plots in the 1830s. In, in Britain, there was a very strong sense of, uh, uh, of that, for some reason, that, it, that sort of Gladstonian liberalism could be transferred to Italy. And as you know, Gladstone went to uh, Naples, denounced uh, the Neapolitan uh, um, kingdom, and... Uh, convinced his colleagues that it was a uniquely awful government and that uh, Britain should support uh, not necessarily the unification of Italy because very few people wanted the unification until it actually happened. I mean, the, the, uh, the uh, agreement between Cavour and Napoleon III at Plombier just two years before the unification was that Italy should be divided into three and, ex and expanded north going from Piedmont to to, to, to Venice uh, and expanded Tuscany including Umbria and the Marches and the Kingdom of, uh, of Naples would be left, left, on it, left on its own. They played a very big part in diplomatic support and also in military support. I mean, Either France or the French or British navies could have stopped Garibaldi getting to Sicily and they could have stopped him, stopped him crossing the Straits of Messina. So I think uh, the, they regarded Italy as the, uh, as a counterpart of the, what were known as the more reactionary regimes in Eastern Europe, Russia and Austria and Hungary, and later Germany. Great, thank you. Yes, the lady that last question. Yes, um, I was wondering because um, Italy is actually a very weird state. I mean, it has no uh, perception of its nationality, and uh, we are not proud of our country. But do you really think that federalism is going to be a solution in the sense that we don't have the perception of our, our country, we don't even have the perception of our regions, and do you think federalism is, is going to be the solution and, don't, and won't let uh, southern Italy uh, to, to itself, like in the hands of corruption, in the hands of mafia, in the hands of... In, and would lead the North to uh, richness. And do you really think is 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 this the solution? I think, I think there is a, is a fairly strong sense of of, of, of regionalism. Well, not not always, but uh, but certainly in in, in 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 Sicily there is. I think in most regions. And of course, the mafia didn't exist before you united Italy. I, I think it would be a bit derogatory to think that the south uh, southern regions couldn't couldn't. Uh, uh, rule themselves. Uh, I, well, I think that without federalism, there isn't hope because I think that I'm not, I'm not saying that Italy is likely to break up and the North will become a, a separate state because that doesn't happen. I mean, nowadays, the apparatus is such a sort of performance to, to build up the apparatus of a state with ministries and armies. But I think it could go more like what has happened in Catalonia or indeed what has happened in, in, in Scotland. That uh, and I, th I think regional loyalties uh, are strong enough for that to, for that to be successful. 
Excellent. Well, before we um, record our pleasure and appreciation to David for what's been a fantastic uh, talk, just uh, on a, a little logistical point, I, I mentioned that there's a reception, as I say, to which everybody is very warmly welcome. Uh, it's not actually just outside here. It's in the atrium of the old building of the LSE, which is the main building on Houghton Street. Uh, with which I'm sure many of you, if not most of you, are familiar. So you go in through the main entrance of the main building of the LSE on Houghton Street uh, and then take a right. It's a nice glassed-over area. Um, just before you go, um, uh, if we can, uh, as I said, I'm sure we will want to uh, convey our warm thanks and appreciation uh, to David for what's been a really fantastic hour.